Amen. Thank you, Mary. I invite you to turn with me in a Bible to 2 Samuel, chapter 12, as we look together at verses 1 to 14. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 14. On Thursday of this week, people all around our country will be giving thanks. Giving thanks for all the many blessings that we have. And while it is good and it is right for all of us to recognize God as the giver of every good and perfect gift, it's actually not enough. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ... If you have received the gift of salvation, merely giving thanks is not sufficient. It's not enough. And here's why. You can be grateful for what you have without being satisfied with what you have. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you should aim to be satisfied with what you have, with who God is and what God has done for you. We don't just want to be glad about the things that we have. We want to be content with what we have, content with who God has made us, content with where we are, content with what God has done for us. In order for that to happen, we need to remember this anchor truth. Nothing in your life will ever be enough to satisfy you until God becomes enough to satisfy you. Nothing will be enough for you until God becomes enough for you. And in David, we see how it is dangerous when we try to satisfy our hearts and the desires of our hearts with anything or anyone other than God. Only God can be enough for you and for me. So as we approach the scripture, we ask the question, why is it that only God is enough to satisfy us? Why is it that only God is enough to satisfy you and satisfy me? We pick up our reading in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little hue lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the hue lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, "'As surely as the Lord lives,' The man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no 
pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Pausing there. David had fooled everyone. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had compounded his sin by then having her husband Uriah murdered. And by all appearances, he got away with it. And God is seemingly absent from the entirety of chapter 11 until the very end of the chapter where it says that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It was evil in God's eyes. He had fooled everyone but one. And what we see in these verses as Nathan confronts David is that only God can expose your sin. Only God can expose your sin and my sin as he exposed the sin of David. And how does God do that? He sends Nathan. Who is Nathan? Nathan is the same prophet that God had sent back in 2 Samuel 7 to deliver God's sovereign and unconditional promises to David. Nathan is the prophet God had sent to say, David, my relationship with you is not going to be like my relationship with King Saul. Your kingdom, your house, your throne, it's going to last forever. And yes, I will discipline you and your sons when you disobey me, but my promise to you is unconditional. Nathan delivered that good word, that astounding word. And now Nathan comes to deliver a word of judgment against David. A word of judgment against David. But notice, God doesn't just lower the boom outright. He sends Nathan to tell a parable. To, to draw David into his own sin, his own crime. So that David will condemn his sin when he sees it apart from his own life. Apart from his own heart. When he sees that same sin in someone else, oh, it's obvious. There's no ambiguity about it. Of course that's wrong. And God is gently moving David to see that sin in his own heart. And so he uses a parable. Notice a couple of things about this parable. We have two men, a rich man and a poor man. And notice in verse 2, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. He had these possessions. Notice the difference in verse 3 with the poor man. But the poor man had nothing except one little hue lamb. He had bought. He had bought. The rich man has what he has because it's been given to him. Whereas the poor man has worked for what he has. Which makes it that much more precious to him. Notice something else at the very end of verse 3. It says, speaking of this little lamb, it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, what you don't see in English is the word daughter is bot in Hebrew. Now, there's somebody else's name that has that beginning. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. The word daughter 
begins the name Bathsheba. So what's happening here is there are subtle hints that this is about David. And yet David doesn't realize it. He doesn't see it. But it's all there right before his eyes. And this is, again, God drawing him in to expose his sin. You also notice that this is about a shepherd. David knows about being a shepherd, doesn't he? This is right up his alley. Oh, I know about shepherds. I know what is equitable and just among shepherds. I can handle this. And as king of Israel, one of David's roles was to be a judge among God's people. And then look at verse 5. When it's clear what has happened, this traveler comes to the rich man, and instead of using his abundance to provide for his guest, he takes the one thing that belongs to the poor man. And of course, that's exactly what King David had done in the case of Uriah the Hittite. David has a palace. He has multiple wives. He has everything he could possibly want or ask for, materially speaking. He's got it all. But it's not enough. He has to take the one thing that belonged to the poor man. But when David sees this in verse 5, he burns with anger. Notice how different this is between the David of chapter 11. In the chapter 11, David, he, he is... He is cool. He's calculating. He has one scheme after another, one plot after another to hide his transgression. But now, oh, he's passionate. Now he's burning with anger. And notice the penalty. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Now, this is actually not a normal punishment for this crime in Israel. In Israel, according to the law, a man who stole another man's lamb would need to make restitution. He would need to pay back. But death? David is unbalanced here. He's going to extreme lengths, maybe because he knows his own guilt. He just doesn't want to acknowledge it. And he also brings God into the equation. He hasn't been thinking about God throughout this entire narrative until now. As surely as the Lord lives, now he wants to bring God in. Now God is a part of the equation. This man who had no pity. And then, in verse 7, God, through Nathan, lowers the boom. You are the man. A mere two words in Hebrew. Ata isha. You are the man. You did that. Everything that you see in this other person, that's you. And so what you and I need to see here is, number one, David's hypocrisy. We've seen this before, but let's highlight it once again, that we are adept, we are so skillful at seeing in others what we don't want to see in our own lives. Are we not? I am. We don't want to acknowledge it when we see it in us. We want to suppress that, we want to hide that, we want to put on a good front, but, oh, when we see it in the headlines... Oh, that's, that's egregious. That's terrible. That's horrible. How dare you? You are the man. You are the woman. This is you. You are guilty too. You are a sinner as well. And while none of us wants to feel guilty, no one wants to feel ashamed, 
Recognize that this is merciful on God's part to do this for David. He could have just killed David outright. But David is his chosen king. He has set his affection. He has made sovereign and unconditional promises to David. And so he sends his prophet to convict David, to let him know, hey, wake up! Remember me? All these other things that you're pursuing, your lust, your reputation, all of that, none of that will satisfy you. It will always leave you wanting more. And he says the same thing to you and to me today. Whatever it is that you want, whether it's possessions, power, position, none of those things will satisfy your heart. It will always leave you wanting more. Just consider that that perfect Christmas present or whatever it is that you've, you've been wanting, you've been planning for, and you get it, oh, it's great. But the magic wears off eventually, doesn't it? When you first get your driver's license, oh man, you're ready to go, right? And now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's kind of nice when somebody drives me around, right? Anything that, that we want, that we pursue, short of God, will not satisfy us. And so give thanks that God and only God can expose what no one else sees. It is merciful of God to convict you through his word. No, it doesn't feel good, but there are lots of things that are good for us that do not feel good, right? This is good for David. Next, look at what God says, second half of verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In these verses, we see that only God can diagnose your heart. Only God can diagnose your heart. God exposes our sin, and then he goes to the heart of the matter, what's really wrong. The crimes, the adultery, the murder, all these things, these are symptoms. These are outward evidences of a heart that is not satisfied with God, that says, God, you are not enough. But before getting to the heart of the matter, God gives background information on everything that he's done for David. The eyes in these verses are emphatic. I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you. I gave you. I would have given you even more. You don't think that's enough? I would have given you even more. But because your heart was drawn to those things, because you were glad about those things without being content with what I had given you, Well, that leads to a deeper problem. But God's saying, what do you have in your life that you did not receive? And this Thanksgiving, I challenge you to ask the same question in your own life. What do you have? What good thing in your life can you take credit for, really? 
What do you have that God hasn't provided for you? That God hasn't made possible for you? And yet, we do the same thing that we see in David, verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? This is the heart of the matter. The evidence of that, you struck down Uriah the Hittite, you used the sword of the Ammonites. You may think, no, I didn't kill him. I didn't lay a hand on him. Well, you killed him through the sword of the Ammonites. You took his wife to be your own. All of this is evidence that you have despised the word of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, in one general sense, he has despised and shown contempt for the word of the Lord in that he has broken God's commands by committing adultery, by committing murder. That's certainly true. But in a more specific sense, David has despised the word of the Lord that God spoke to him in 2 Samuel 7 when God told him, I am going to build an eternal kingdom out of your family. And that wasn't enough for David. He wasn't content with that. And by using this strong word, despise, we have echoes of 1 Samuel in chapter 2, verse 30, where God brings his judgment against Eli and his corrupt sons. Far be it from me, those who honor me, I will honor But those who despise me, see the word, those who despise me will be disdained. And you see what happened to Eli and his sons. They're cut off. This is a grave, deadly sin that can take hold in your heart. What does it mean to despise? Well, think about what old Goliath David's nemesis says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 42, he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. So picture Goliath looking at the shepherd boy, David, and saying, really? This is who they send out? And that same word is being used in 2 Samuel 12, about David's attitude toward God's word, toward his promises. God's saying, David, in effect, you're like Goliath looking at you. When you look at my promises and you say, is that it? (laughs) Is, Is that enough? You expect me to be content with that, to be satisfied with that? That's exactly what he has done. That's the root of the problem, a failure to see God as enough. Do you see God as enough right now? Be honest with yourself. Do you love the gifts of God as much as you love God himself and his holiness and his mercy and his love for you? Which is it? We all love good gifts. (laughs) There's nothing Christian about that. You don't have to believe there's a God at all to enjoy good gifts. But to look to the giver To love the giver and to say, God, if I don't have one other thing in my life, I have you and that is totally sufficient. Can you say that today? Now here's the punishment, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. 
Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. God disciplines those whom he loves, and he disciplined David. And we see that only God can discipline your life. And sometimes that discipline is painful. Sometimes we reap exactly what we have sown. And notice how the penalties, the punishment that God lays down correspond exactly to what David has done. The sword, you killed Uriah the Hittite using the sword of the Ammonites, so also the sword will never depart from your house. And if you know anything about what comes after this and continuing on First and Second Kings, you know it's going to get ugly for the house of David. It's going to get really ugly. And it's all a direct consequence of David's sin. And notice the second half of verse 10. Because you despised me. Now earlier in verse 9 it said, why did you despise the word of the Lord? You see how these things go hand in hand. To despise the word of the Lord, to despise what God has said, to despise what God has promised, is to despise God himself. We can't miss this. Be very careful. Be very diligent in how you handle the word of God. May we never be guilty of saying, oh, it's just an old book. It's just the Bible. Oh, we're so far removed from that. We know so much more now. Be careful. When you despise the word of the Lord, you're despising God himself because he gave the word for you. He speaks truth and he speaks truthfully for his people. Learn from it. Don't despise God by despising his word as David did. And then, corresponding with his adultery, I will bring calamity. Before your very eyes, I'm going to take your harem, all these wives that you inherited from Saul, they're going to be given to another. And what he doesn't know, that's going to be his own son when there's a civil war in Israel. And while you did this in secret, trying to hide it, this is going to be done in broad daylight, before the sun. All Israel will know of this deed. The punishment fits the crime. Calamity. And just as a side note, we may wonder, okay, what's up with all these wives? Isn't that displeasing to God? Isn't marriage between one man and one woman for life? Yes, indeed. But as we've seen, God made accommodation in these times. This isn't ideal. God's not approving any of this. But it's the way of the world in this time. And you see the judgment that comes. There's nothing good about it. We need God to discipline our lives. And yes, it hurts sometimes. Yes, we don't like to be convicted of our sins. But it's only when God disciplines you and disciplines me that we're brought to true repentance. True repentance. We don't just say sorry. We're not just sorry that we got caught. We're sorry for what we did, that we have despised God, God himself. Only God can bring that self-control in your life. Only God can do, as David says in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit, not a spirit that does this grudgingly, 
that wants to obey you. Give me that to sustain me, God. Otherwise, I'm lost. I'm hopeless. And we see true repentance in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. God and only God can expose the sin in your life, can diagnose your heart, can discipline your life, and only God can take away your sin. David acknowledges, I have sinned against the Lord. I'm guilty. The punishment that I wanted to execute on this hypothetical person in this parable, that person should die. I deserve that. I deserve that. And it's not until you're ready to say, yes, I deserve to have this holy God cut me off that you're ready then to hear what Nathan says. These, these stunning and, and scandalous words. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now our judgmental self says, what? After everything David did? God, why? This is wrong. Don't you realize how grievous his sins were? He committed adultery. He had a man killed. He won't own up to it. God, kill him. That's what he deserves, right? And these scandalous words, the, the Lord has taken away your sin. It's gone. Now, that doesn't mean that the punishment's all gone. There are consequences for his sins. And they will be painful. But the ultimate penalty will not be executed. He won't bear the full brunt of what he deserves. How is this possible? How is this possible? Well, we may wonder, and why does this child have to die? Why does this child have to die? And while we're going to think about that more next week, for the moment, let's remember that we need to be very slow in judging God's actions and saying what is right for God to do or what is wrong for God to do. God is God, we are not. But also notice that we have an innocent life that does die and a guilty life that lives. Which points us to the scandal of God's grace for sinners like you and like me. Remember, you are the man. You are the woman for whom the righteous, pure, holy Son of God died. For you and for me. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, the innocent one, the righteous one, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be a sin offering, to stand in the place of sin, to pay the penalty for sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God, so that guilty people like David and like Dane Hadley and like you could be declared righteous. No, it's not fair. 
No, it's not right by our lights that Jesus, the innocent one, should die in our place, but that's how God did it. And if it's scandalous, so be it. It's grace. Are you thankful or not? You are the man, you are the woman for whom Jesus died. What more do you want? What more could you ask for? So this Thanksgiving, don't just be grateful. Don't just be glad about the good things you have in your life. Be content, be satisfied with the greatest gift that anyone could ever give to you. Grace. Scandalous grace for a sinner like you and like me. But amazing grace. Amazing grace. Are you thankful today? Are you thankful? I pray that you would be by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And while we can't do a, an altar call as we would like, I invite you to find me after the service if there is any decision you need to make, if there's anything you need prayer around. If you're watching online and, and you want to reach out, please do so by email. Don't let this moment pass without recognizing what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Don't let this moment pass without letting God be enough. He is enough. He is sufficient. May he be sufficient for you in your life. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Lord, we confess that we are like David. When we see sin in other people, when we see sin around us, it's blatantly obvious to us. But we are so reluctant to see the same sin in our own hearts. And while we know that conviction for sin never feels good, we thank you that your word convicts us, that your word will not allow us to escape, that you confront us right where we are. And you show us what's lurking underneath our own hearts. You show us what no one else can see. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would turn to you for mercy and for grace and for forgiveness. Not because of anything we have done or said, but all because of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, help us to receive that gift today as you enable us by your Holy Spirit. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.